There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a best-selling author, television presenter and blogger. Her honest and funny accounts of motherhood as a black woman have turned her into one of Britain's most successful influencers, with almost a quarter of a million followers on Instagram. But despite her vibrant, stylish clothes, her adorable children, her doting husband, she doesn't promote the picture-perfect, yummy mummy lifestyle. Instead, she's open about the challenges she's faced. Her father dropped dead suddenly when she was 21. She's written about her abortion and how she nearly died when her first baby was born, as well as describing her postnatal depression and her own mother's mental health problems. I noticed that the mummy market was flooded with white middle-class nuclear families, and from a business perspective, I saw a gap in the market, she says. But she admits, I've had a rocky road. Candice Brathwaite, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. Do you think society has an outdated view of motherhood, that we're all supposed to be able to have it all, baking cupcakes while holding down a successful career, making sure our kids are grade 8 violin and fluent in Mandarin? It's absolutely impossible, um, especially when you start to arrive at many different intersections, because it's not just race that makes many of these things impossible. It's class, it's money, it's time. And so, yeah, it does feel slightly outdated. And every time I think we're making headway in the motherhood conversation, there are unfortunately other women and mothers who bring us back a bit. And I'm like, sometimes it feels like we're our own worst enemy. It's sort of very competitive sometimes, isn't it? When actually everyone needs to help each other out. And yeah. Do you think that things are changing, though, that the younger generation isn't going to be as competitive about it? Not only do I think they're not going to be competitive, I think so many of them are turning their backs on motherhood altogether. And I honestly can't blame them, especially where the state of our country is at now in terms of affording childcare. There are so many, I've got many younger friends who are like between 25 to 30, who are just like, it's just not on the list for them, because it feels like a task that is going to take more than it gives. And it doesn't feel like our country is ready to be the kind of community support that we need in order to make motherhood a little bit easier. That's so fascinating. And do you think of yourself as an influencer or does that sort of diminish your role? Are you more of a campaigner? 
Um, no, I go with influencer simply because I once heard Barack Obama um, introduced as an influencer and that made me chuckle. <laughs> and my husband was like... Rather I than said, president. Oh my gosh, they called him an influencer. <laughs> and then my husband was like, he influences millions of people. Yeah. And so I'm actually taking the power back with that word. I understand so many people with large online platforms don't like it. It doesn't bother me. I think it, the roots are what are you influencing? I think that's the most important thing. And we want to take you back to your own childhood, which you grew up in Brixton and your parents split over your father's philandering, which began even before you were born. And then your mother struggled with her mental health. Can you just take us back, just really right to the very beginning when you were born? Oh my gosh. So yeah, born in Brixton, South London. And then I was primarily raised by my maternal grandfather. He was violently mugged a little bit before I was born. And then he was left blind in one eye and he was deemed as unfit for work. So what then happened is my nan, my maternal grandmother went out to pay the mortgage and my granddad became like a stay at home husband. And then my mum found out she was pregnant with me. She wanted to go back to work. And my granddad was like, oh, I'll look after my nickname then became booby. I'll look after booby you go back to work and so my maternal grandfather raised me from the ages of naught to about eight which was so strange in those days like there'd be a gaggle of mothers after school and there my granddad will be in his like dust colored pea coat with a pipe always smoking a pipe um he'd be the one that comes to parent evenings and so from the very beginning I had a very different understanding of how a household can work because this is the late 80s early 90s you know there aren't many men staying at home and not only staying at home my granddad was really proud of that job um I saw my dad every weekend we had a really really close relationship then my mum had another child when I was seven, eight, and then we left my grandparents' home. And that was a really tumultuous time for me because that's when I started to see the cracks in my mum's mental health. They were there way before. And now we've had conversations that those cracks were there way before I was born. Um, But it became very apparent to me. And I ended up taking on a lot of responsibility really young. And how did your mother's mental health problems affect you? You must have been incredibly self-reliant. Oh, so self-reliant. And also at a very young age, I became aware of reading the temperature in a room before going in it. What is her mood like? What's the vibe like today? How can I either mirror the vibe or raise the vibration of the room? I always felt like it was my job to be cheery and upbeat because I needed to make her happier. And I felt that from a really young age. And I think I... It's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I recount it in my first book. I I think I was about six when I witnessed her first overdose. Not her first, but one of. And I remember having to like climb on the kitchen countertop and open a cupboard and try and read the medicine to the person down the line on nine nine nine. So yeah, it it was it was it was a pretty hard upbringing in some areas. And do you think your grandfather was then actually the most influential, really, person in your life? The sort of the person that oh, gave you your work ethic and your... Oh, absolutely. And what I find very interesting about my granddad is he's extremely dyslexic to the point he will still get me to read his letters now or try and help him sign something now. And yet he would go to the bookshop every Friday. There was a bookshop, I think, in Kennington. And he'd bring home a stack of books encouraging me to read, even though 
he couldn't really understand what I was reading, but he just thought reading and writing was so important. And he'd stand over me as I practiced my handwriting and he'd say, flash the pen, booby, flash the pen, write like you mean it. And like, and then, and I had no idea when I was like five, six, that he couldn't read or write really well, if at all. Um, and so he really programmed me into believing that those two things, reading, writing three, reading, writing, comprehension, as he would say, would make the difference in my life. So Fascinating. And, and was he very domesticated as well? It must have given <gasps> you quite an interesting view of masculinity and parenting. <sighs> so domesticated took care of all the washing would even iron my hair ribbons to wear to school which no. I just found a bit psychotic um, <laughs> he sounds like he loved it though he loved it and what I find really interesting now is my husband is way more domesticated than me so clearly there was some imprint on me that made me believe that this is just as masculine as going out to work and then coming home and cracking a beer and saying, what did the kids get up to, you know? Mm. And so, so I've got a brother who's just turned 21. And then I, uh, the second sibling is a sister. So I've got a sister and a brother. And I found myself very, um, I found myself mothering them from a really early age to the point that I would go to like their parent evenings or I would know not to bring home a, a, a piece of paper that mentioned a, a, a trip or an after school club because it wouldn't work with their schedule. And I know that my mum would feel pressure then. She'd be like, oh, I want you to do that. But then who's going to collect your brother? Who's going to like start dinner? And so, yeah, I was to the point that, you know, when my siblings started to get a bit older, whenever there was a big question or a big issue, everyone in my family would be like, oh, go and ask your, your second mum. I would be the one right. that would be made to make the have the final say. Did, did you feel that you had to make sacrifices and that was quite hard in a way? <gasps> Absolutely. Hot, so hard. And, you know, I, I listen to many podcasts and speakers and writers now who are like, you know, but it made me who I am and absolute rubbish. Hated every second <laughs> of it very much still jealous of I'm jealous of my own children my nine-year-old doesn't know how to iron and she shouldn't but by about eight I was ironing my uniform every Sunday and so to watch her just spend time being a child there is a part of me that's like gosh I've missed so much you know and so there are times I'm a little bit upset to be fair when when you talked earlier about about your um, mother and her trying to kill herself, that must have happened more than once. How did you cope with that? And did you internalise it? Or did you tell anyone at school? Or who did you talk to about it? So what is really interesting about my mum's um, desire to end her own life is that this was really common. I would say at least six out of 10 friends at the time had mums who had also been admitted to a mental hospital or institution of some sort. And it's just really, actually, now that I'm older and I've had time to go through the data, it was terribly common in the black community, especially in more impoverished areas, in spe especially in areas where the black community was dense. This was a very common thing. So it honestly didn't feel strange. It felt sad. It felt strained, but it didn't feel strange. And I remember on the road I grew up on, um, there was, uh, you know, a family that had been there as long as my grandparents had been there. They have lost three sons to suicide in the space of 10 years. 
And so, and now I see their mother, I call her Auntie Shirley because she's a lot older than me. And I think, I feel like Auntie Shirley's own soul left the chat ages ago. She's always slightly glazed over, you know? But what really annoys me is that in the black community, it's still really, really not encouraged to speak about your mental health. Mm. And what was your relationship with your father like? You said you were close to him. (laughs) Yeah, very close to my father. I was my father's only child. So that made our relationship just terribly unique. And I would honestly see going to my dad's as escapism because I was his only child, because he had uh, a life that was a little less full of stress. I could just go to my dad's house and absolutely be a child and raid the fridge and go to Blockbuster (laughs) and not have to think about being like a part-time mom or, you know, ironing clothes. It was just a place I truly got to relax. And if anything, I'm really grateful um, for my dad being able to provide me with that kind of headspace. And then when you were 21, he died very suddenly. That must have been just such a shock in every way, wasn't it? It's still so shocking. That's the only... I was an au pair living in Naples, Italy at the time. And I remember I'd sent him some images. I'd been out the night before and my dad always had some kind of device in his hand or was near a device. And it'd been over an hour and he hadn't responded to my email. And I know this sounds incredibly insane. In that moment, a part of my brain was like, he would only ever take this long if he were dead. Ha ha. You know, like, come on, don't be ridiculous. The other parts of my brain are going. All of a sudden, I'm getting all these emails from his work colleagues saying, call me now, call me now. Me not thinking, I email him again saying, dad, I think your work server has been intercepted. You know, get someone at IT to look at this because I'm getting all these spammy emails Almost an hour later, I've tried to call his house phone, which is engaged. And now there's a bigger part of my brain going, no, he something really bad has happened because that phone is never in use. I call my maternal grandmother. Long story short, she calls me back and she doesn't say a word. There's just deep breathing on the other end. And I was, I just knew. And then we found out, I remember speaking to him on Wednesday and he said, he called me canned for short, canned. I'm full of cold. I don't feel well. It was the flu that turned into pneumonia that eventually turned into sepsis and all his internal organs had shut down. He was on his way to a football match that Saturday morning, decided to pull in at hospital and went into cardiac arrest in the waiting room of A&E and just died in front of a bunch of strangers. It's literally, you couldn't make it up. I don't even think he had a concept of how sick he truly was. So had he been misdiagnosed? Had he gone to the doctor earlier? No, he hadn't been to... This is another thing. And I know this isn't just a black thing. This is a man thing. He was just like, it's just the common flu, you know? Mm. And then when the results came back, he hadn't used the loo in over a week. I mean, in what, oh like, my goodness. at some point you have to reckon that your body isn't doing what you usually expect it to do, mm. you know, seek help. But unfortunately, it was a little too late. And the, the awful thing must be not being able to talk to him or say what you wanted to say to him mm. before he died or have any of those conversations or discussions or <sighs> even talk to those, him maybe about his childhood. Those have been, the, I think, the hardest things now trying to like, closed the gaps in my mind and I remember coming back home to the UK and going to his home and finding his phone and I was the last dialed number in his phone 
which I which rocks me still because I'm like, at what point were you trying to call me? Mm. I'm not sure. Like, did you know this was the end? Because the people at the hospital let us know that he died with his phone in his hand. So did you have, did you have a message from him? No, no message, mm. nothing. I just I picked up his BlackBerry when I was in his house, and there I my canned was there was like the last dialed number, and so all I can hope is that some kind of communication was going to be made. But I will say this, and this only this has come through years of therapy and deep understanding. I absolutely, positively would not have the life I have now if my dad didn't die so early, and that's simply because we there was some kind of enmeshment in our relationship so deep I would have constantly been trying to please him and he was very much like go to uni become a solicitor you know this is how you get ahead in the world I I know he found my creative side and my my desire to write short stories a, a little bit too creative and so having him not be here as like a human overseer completely unlock the doors for me to establish a life on my terms not his and then you got pregnant didn't you as well so yeah I mean in a way that's really bittersweet because you probably wanted him to see the grandchild but at the same time it gives you someone else doesn't it yeah I got pregnant for a I want to in some part of my mind he for a lovely man but it just wasn't going to work. And I wasn't ready to parent. And so I remember making my decision to have an abortion very clear, with a very clear mind and without guilt. Like that was the final resolution. And I remember my maternal grandmother being very supportive of that decision. Because since I could remember, she always used to say to me, you know, I, I really wanted to be a nurse but I had your mother and your uncle and having kids really like just put a, a fork in in my own dreams. Try not to make that mistake. So she was very physical at that time and very hands-on. And I talk about that so openly because that abortion makes me the incredible mother I am today. Because I was open to having that choice I can now parent the children I have knowing I'm wholeheartedly going into that decision for better or for worse. Um, and yeah, uh, and I know we know where the world is at and not every woman gets to make that decision. So I'm just really grateful I was able to do that. That's so interesting. Did you have any regrets at all? Or did you feel it was just totally the right thing? Zero. I yeah. don't, I, I know... And I don't frown on the women that do, but I don't necessarily like have a date in mind or think of the child in any type of way. Um, interestingly, though, the the man I would have had a child with reached out to me recently and apologized for just not being the greatest guy. And I was like, and then that made me do the dates. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I would have had a 16 year old child right now. Absolutely cannot. Yeah. <laughs> cannot do that <laughs> well any people did you feel judgmental about it or not or do you think we've changed enough now to realize in britain oh no especially in in any community classed as bane lots of judgment and even so and i think absolutely more judgment because i then decided to write about it and that was like the opener of a book about black british motherhood just so much judgment still although i just live above it 
And that's not to say I'm better than those that are judging me. I just think open dialogue is really, really important. And I refuse to be shamed. And what about when you got pregnant for the second time? Because by then you were in love with your partner, you were 26, you were established, but you still had some doubts, didn't you, about whether you wanted to be a mother and why? Oh, the the doubts definitely stemmed from having to take on a mothering role so early. I felt a part of me was like, well, have you recouped enough of those teen years? Have you really lived? Have, you know, are you going to wake up tomorrow when this child is here and think, oh gosh, I'm dying to go clubbing again. Have I really been able to do that? That was my biggest, aside from not being that well off. Although when I told my granddad I was pregnant, he said something that sticks with me forever. He was like, you know, your finances could forever be fleeting. And he said, you could decide not to have this child and then be on the up and up for the rest of your life. And there'll be a part of your brain that will go, gosh, I wish, you know, he was like, have the kid, the money will find you. And I'm so Mm. grateful for that advice. (laughs) And then when your daughter Esme was born, it was really, really difficult, wasn't it? You had a really hard birth. Such a hard birth. I think I was overdue by, say, a week and a half. Uh, I found the the midwives very physically invasive at that time. We ended up doing 19 hours of induced labour to only dilate by half a centimetre. For anyone who's not had a child, you need to be at 10. (laughs) And I'm at half a centimetre after 19 hours of like hormone induced labour. Literally begged for a C-section. Finally got the sign off just before midnight. And I remember hearing the surgeon say, let's hurry this one along because I should have been home hours ago. Oh my goodness. And I think that statement just was like the beginning of the chapter of hell. A couple of days later, I'm trying to recover. I'm feeling a lot worse. I'm not feeling any better. I've got three or four different midwives coming to check me. You're fine. You're fine. Esme falls asleep on me one night where all awoken by this horrific smell. We assume it's her nappy. We work out it's actually me. Now, what's happened is an, um, a septic wound has started to fester under my C-section. Oh, no. Oh. And the pressure of Esme's body has made this wound open. And now green and black gunk is just oh. sliding oh down God. to my knees. At this point, though, I'm so delirious and obviously so sick I'm actually laughing because I'm like, finally, I've got some proof. I've been telling people for the last three days, I'm sweating through to the mattress. I don't feel well. Bear with me one second. (laughs) Babe! Babe! I'm recording a podcast. (laughs) Sorry, he's hoovering. Very well Very domesticated, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, so were you at home at this point or in hospital still? I was at home. After that C-section, um, I, I got discharged the next day. So I'm at home at this point. And the midwives that are coming to see me are like, I remember one midwife saying, it's all in your head. You're a new mum. Stay off the internet. I'm sure you're just reading horrible stories on the internet. And so to have this smell and this visible gunk I get I get rushed back to hospital and I'm kind of just in A&E which clears out by the way because the smell is ungodly 
Um, even the nurse dealing with me kept heaving. She was like, I'm so sorry. I was like, darling, I want to do the same thing. I'm just in too much pain. Don't worry. Um, I was like, finally, I've got proof to align with the fact that I felt so unwell. Emergency surgery, and it took me ages to recover. I was away from Esme for five weeks after that. Did they bring her in at all? Once. She was brought in once, and that was when I'd just come round from the emergency surgery and I remember her car seat at the end of the bed but I was in like a biohazard type room no one was allowed in without a mask and all of this gear and I had all these tubes coming out of me with the infection coming out and it was really gruesome and then of course many years later because Esme was born in 2013 in 2018 the data was released by Embrace that at that time black women were five times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts in the UK. And this just caused an online conversation where out of nowhere, all of these black women came out the woodworks and were like, this happened to me, this happened to me. This, And almost there was this community around this data and the root of all the data was no one took me seriously. And do you think that's right, that the doctors and nurses were to blame and that, that was that partly because you were black? Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting. I now have conversations with white midwives who admit to me after engaging with my work where they're like, you know, there's something in our brains that just think black women are stronger. It's like how they're pre-programmed or the kind of news they ingest. And so now they are having to use work like mine to like deconstruct those feelings. And, you know, studies showed in America that doctors were more likely to give black patients less pain relief because they assumed that black people had a higher threshold for pain. Like black this, babies this, also have a higher risk of being stillborn, don't they? So, yes. I mean, it's, it's the mothers and the babies that are more at risk. Exactly. And I know recently, I won't say her name, but I know recently there was a very famous YouTuber, a black um, woman, very young black woman, who complained of being short of breath for for weeks and both her and her child ended up dying i think that this happened last year so these stories are not uncommon um it's just that unfortunately where our health service is at as well i understand the strains and the pressure you know i totally understand that midwives are exhausted and at their wits end but there needs to be some kind of re-education because unfortunately women are losing their lives Mm. What kind of change do you think would make the most difference? Do you think it's an education programme or do we need to speak out more about it? Because it happened in COVID too, didn't it? That you saw that black people tended to have more of a propensity to die and we still don't know 100% yet whether that's because they were treated differently or because they did. Yeah, I definitely think it's education. I do think that what's interesting now is I, I was told by midwives that my first book is on their list of required reading. Now, so it's stuff like that. It's like making this, making this kind of education a rule, making these books a rule so that people are open and aware to stories and lives that aren't necessarily their own. Also, it's about access because if we had more black midwives or black doctors or more BAME midwives and doctors, um, there'd be less gaps, you know, but there's a lack of access. Many young kids where going into midwifery or being a doctor might be their dream 
Um, they might not have the resources. They might not be able to study in the way that someone that comes from a more well-to-do middle-class background can. So there's that also. And is there something similar going on with motherhood? Because you've talked about a sort of beige image of mothers (laughs) with glossy white women in striped tops pushing 800-pound buggies. (laughs) Is it that black mothers are too often invisible and made to feel invisible? And Whose fault is that? I think for a long time it was the fault of traditional media and forward slash advertising. There's been such a change, especially since women like myself got online and really started to make noise about the fact that, you know, not only are we mothers too, if we're solely going to talk about this from a business perspective, we spend money on the buggies and the bottles and the things and the paraphernalia. Exactly. So why would you cut us out of advertising? Because you should also be speaking to us. So I think there's been a great change I think there's a little bit more of a way to go in terms of fictional tv and stuff like that but I would say in terms of media in terms of advertising they are bucking up their ideas is it also about class in a way and that actually you have to have money so the buggies are really expensive and the all the paraphernalia and the kind of you know designer clothes that people start wanting for their children is do you think that is really divisive so divisive and so so divisive that because of the career I've built now, because I exist in a different class, there are many black women who have said to me, this conversation is no longer for you. Because although you are black, you're no longer black and working class. And so now, even though your skin is very dark, Because of the means you have, you can exist more in a space with the beige and the 800 pound buggy. And so there's also this internal fraughtness and conversation about, well, does black only mean poor? Does black only mean struggling? These are the the, the other conversations I'm trying to have. And I've got to admit, for me, it's a struggle because I never saw that coming. When I started this career, I remember one night with Esme, we had to choose between topping up the gas meter and putting nappies on her bum. We chose nappies and we all just hunkered down and got on with it. But life has changed. I always say if Esme was born with no spoon, my son was born with a silver spoon. And these same 800 pound buggies just arrived. You know, a PR company's just like, here's five buggies. But are there pressures on black parents that are are not related to money? So you talked about how you had to be very careful when you were naming your children to avoid the ghetto, as you called it. I thought that was fascinating. What did you mean by that? So we all know we've had data that shows that like there's now AI that scans CVs. And if a name is perceived as too ethnic or hard to pronounce, the AI immediately rejects it. And so many, especially Um, traditional West African names or Caribbean names they're not Emily or Susie or so I was even thinking when naming my daughter specifically I was like what's gonna be a name that gets you seen by a future employer so Esme yeah how did you come up with Esme oh my gosh this is really embarrassing I'm a massive fan of Breaking Dawn like the (laughs) vampire story and in it, Edward Cullen's stepmom or mum of sorts is called Esme. And I absolutely fell in love with that name. <laughs> and what's your and son called? Richard. After 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 my dad, he's Richard Jr. Uh, and we just call him RJ. And, the, you know, these are genuine concerns. And then when Richard was born, we decided to leave London because I noticed that um, knife crime was just on the up and up. 
And I was like, I don't even want to bring up a black boy in a space where wrong place, wrong time. And this isn't to say that every, you know, there's a utopia in the UK. There is not. I just felt like not raising him in that city might give him a better chance at life. And there are so many black parents of black sons now considering that move just because of knife crime in the city. And then when you moved to Milton Keynes, your daughter did suffer from racism at school when she first went there. So it was equally as tough at the beginning for her, wasn't it, to get over that? And I felt so guilty because I thought, well, is this the trade-off? You know, in trying to protect her brother, have I left her vulnerable to racist attacks or to feeling like she's less than or not included? And I remember it was a, a, a young white girl in reception just out and out said to her, I'm not playing with you because you're black. I'm I'm not allowed to play with black people. So and like, would that not away. have happened in London, do you think? I just highly doubt mm. it. London is, you know, like, there's just such a mix of people. The reality was Esme was the, at that time, she was the only black girl in the entirety of the school. There were two other black boys, but she was the only black girl between reception and year six. And so when, you know, you're one of one, Mm. it does make you a bit of a target. And she was heartbroken. And the school dealt with it. Not only did the school deal with it appallingly, when I did get to sit with the head teacher, she did admit to me that they were working with a charity um, called Prevent um, that dealt with um, the radicalization in children because they had found that kids in reception in year one were showing national front tendencies. That's terrifying. And I was like, okay, we gotta go. (laughs) I'm sorry, I don't have time for Esme to be the test bunny on whether like the interaction and the education's working. Mm. We have to go. And we took a great leap of faith and put her in a local private school, which just housed what felt like a million Nigerian children. And I turned to my husband, my partner then at the time, and I was like, why are all your people here? (laughs) And he was like, because in Nigeria, there is like no middle class. You're, you either don't have it or everyone goes to private school. And so when these Nigerian families come to the UK, more often than not, they just put their kids in a private school. And so all of a sudden, Esme was like one of 25 (laughs) and no one cared, you know? Um, And I found that very interesting. You're listening to Past Imperfect, in association with the youth social mobility charity, Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the author and television presenter, Candice Brathwaite. We'll be back after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest, Candice Brathwaite. Your first book was called I Am Not Your Baby Mother. Why did you choose that title? I chose that title to be a bit you know, to be a bit spiky, because I remember growing up, the term baby mother was really disrespectful. Oh, you know, no one used a certain woman's name. They'd say, oh, that's Richie's baby mother. That's Sam's baby mother. Like they'll put the man's name in and then eradicate the woman. And I knew that my community specifically would pick up that book and know exactly what that word meant. And what I found at the time, which I found really annoying is the term baby mama which is Americanized, was like being used on movies and in music. And I was like, no, but the roots of this is really uncomfortable, you know. And I remember saying to my publishers at the time, before I signed the book deal, I said, you only get this book if we don't play with the title. And they let me have that. And I think it worked out for everyone. Yeah, but the interesting thing is it's about absent fathers, isn't it? And do yeah. you, So Barack Obama's been really interesting about the importance of black men taking more responsibility for their children. And in this country, David Lammy has said similar things. Do you agree? Yeah. Do you think um, too many black fathers are, are absent? Do you know what? I know some people just give me so much blowback. The reality is yes. And I'm saying that from a space of where I maybe had too much black dadness in my life. <laughs> black granddad <laughs> as well. <laughs> but I know from looking at my friends and from now the conversations I'm having online, there are, especially in the UK, there's a, there is an absence of black men standing up for their responsibilities and it's something that shocked my husband again he's born and raised in Nigeria where not being there for your child is like an embarrassing thing of the village it's like what do you mean you know and so I find this issue to be very unique to black Britain and certain parts of America what's interesting is that I spend a lot of time on the island of Barbados and all the men, like my granddad, it's always the men taking the kids to school. It's the men doing pickup. It's them making dinner. I don't know what the disconnect is, especially in the UK. But I do think, I, I do think there are a lot of absences which aren't great. How can you overcome that? Is there a way that you could help them get role models? Oh, how can we overcome that? And is it I teachers think, or I mean? Yeah, I think the way to overcome it now is to really focus on the boys that are going to become black fathers tomorrow. Unfortunately, I'm re I'm quite I'm quite a lazy person by nature, so I wouldn't necessarily talk to those over forty because I'm like 
many and many especially in the black community they're set in their ways I think conversations really need to be had with those in their mid to late teens now of what it means to be a responsible not just father but man you know because it starts like that it's like how are we talking to women how are we engaging with them how are we respecting them because that that will then filter down to how we stand up to our responsibilities if we decide to have children with them and your husband's really good on your Instagram. He's all over it. And you're, is that deliberate? And does he mind? Are you saying to him, look, you've got to be a role model? Oh, no. I, so, sometimes I'm asking him to get off. <laughs> <laughs> so he's hijacked it, basically. <laughs> like, girl. Um, but we do, I'd be lying if I said that we didn't understand the power our relationship has in being in some ways public. There is power in that. I don't think we have many um black couples of our age as role models front-facing raising young families they're not common and so we understand the power behind that and we understand the message that would send to those our age about how um important it is we are that we're seen to be living a positive family life I just think it's really unique I do see a lot um, from influences in America, African Americans, but Black British is really few and far between. And I think we don't mind displaying our family life or our love because there's just such, whenever we do, the feedback shows there's such a desire for it. There's so much of it lacking. People are just like, oh my gosh, we don't see this often. And is he more like your grandfather than your father? Because he's hoovering in the background. Does he iron Esme's ribbons for school? He he ironed her uniform this morning. <laughs> the reality is we made we made a promise to each other that we wouldn't let what society says we should do dictate what is better for our family. And right now I'm in a period of my life where it makes sense if I go out and make the money and he stays home and manages the kids. And at one point it was the other way around. And I have no doubt we'll flip flop till we die. Um, but we both take pride in whichever position we're playing. And your book touched nerve because it came out three days after the murder of George Floyd in the US. And for a moment, it felt like everything was changing with the Black Lives Matter and discussions would be had and people being more open about talking about race. Do you think that's gone backwards again? Absolutely. We've gone absolutely backwards. We've become very prickly. Um, and I just feel as though... It's not really an open, honest conversation people are willing to have. Because what happened, naturally, is so many white people, especially online, felt very uncomfortable, which I understand. But it then just made the conversation close up a bit. And so I do feel like we've gone backwards a bit. And, and that's not just on the basis of conversation. It's also because... For whatever reason, maybe it's because we're coming out of like, or we're trying to come out of this post-pandemic situation. P trolls and racial trolling online is just at an all-time high. This desire to say certain things, to say racist things. I've, I've never lived through a period like this before. And because I lived through 2020, I can say, oh no, it's got, it's got a lot worse. And I can't understand why. I don't, I don't understand why. Is it because those with those racist views saw that progress was being made and they didn't like it? And so now it's like, actually, we need to remind people that this is what we will and won't stand for. I'm not sure. 
What did you think of Lady Susan Hussey's comments at Buckingham Palace where she asked a black guest, where are you from? Where are you really from? I just thought... I wish I could say I was surprised. I wasn't. I just kept reading that story and my eyes were getting wider and wider at her not understanding with each point, like the mood, the touching of the hair, the moving, like this constant, almost silent aggression to make a point about the fact that, quote unquote, um, this person isn't born here or they don't belong. I found that um, not shocking, but really annoying, really distressing. And also just, that I, I, I'm, I can be quite petty. I'm also like, and also very revealing. Like that, that's not one of one. That's mm. one of many. And it just depends on how willing the royals are to educate those within their ranks about what is right and what is wrong. Mm. And does it happen to you often? Do you get that kind of questioning? <sighs> no, never. Not never. It's just not happened in such a long time. The issue is, though, is and it's not an issue, but it's a reality is, um, I'm currently a front-facing black British person. So microaggressions don't come towards me the way they would if I was just doing a traditional nine-to-five and fewer people knew my name. The reality is now is that the fact I'm Candice Brathwaite supersedes the fact I'm a black woman. There was an incident, though, wasn't there? On the day your book was published, you went out to buy champagne. What happened? (laughs) Yeah, I went to a local, very well-known supermarket to buy one of my favourite bottles of champagne. I've used the self-checkout, paid and everything. And the security guard literally comes Usain (laughs) Bolting after me, you know, um, wanting to see my receipt and, and insinuating that I'd stolen the champagne. And I just stood there like so aghast and then my my husband got out the car and it became a thing and then a a very nice and well-meaning white woman who does who didn't know me was just like that was was telling the security guard off saying that was so uncalled Mm. for there were like 10 of us using self-checkout why have you just seen and you know he couldn't he could he could not explain quote unquote why he had singled me out I was literally the only black woman for miles but that in that moment you know like you're going up so high in a hot air balloon it's like someone just put a pin in it Mm. like can I not just celebrate this day and you worked in publishing before you wrote your book. Was it bad there, the racism or not? Or, and why did you decide to write the book? Was it because you felt there weren't enough voices like yours? Yeah, I wouldn't say racism was bad in publishing. I certainly didn't see a lot of myself, which is an issue in publishing across the board. But I wouldn't even say that's racism. It's more nepotism. Unfortunately, um, publishing really is this old guard of, well, I know someone who knows someone who does this job and does this thing. And if you unfortunately didn't go to Oxford or this other university, you might not have the access into that conversation. And yeah, I decided to write I'm Not Your Baby Mother as a sincere two fingers up to an industry that just refused to give the conversation around black British motherhood, the time of day, every book I engaged with in the lead up to having Esme came in from the US. And so I was paying postal on, on, you know, on books when I really couldn't afford it, but I couldn't get material that would help explain how the situation might be different for me based on skin color, heritage and culture. And so I knew that when I had the chance to fix that, I would, And I think, I know that when I'm Not Your Baby Mother came out in 2020, it it was the only 
book at the time where you could go to the British Library and ask for a book about Black British motherhood written by a female author. That is absurd, though. Mm. You know, on one hand, I want to be like so egotistical. Oh, that's so cool. But it's also absurd. Mm. Yeah. Do you think how many by white women there are? You know, I just think, what are you saying? And you asked for a black editor as well. Why was that important? Oh, that was important because, and I didn't realise that was important until I got the first round of edits back and I had quite quite an older white woman editing the book and there were things in the margin that just made my skin itch. She was... Uh, she, I remember one comment saying, well, surely all Africans say this. And it's like, sweetheart, number one, Africa's a continent. And within those countries, there's many cultures, you know. So no, all Africans don't say this. <laughs> and I remember just like calling um, someone high up. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I was like, this is not going to work. And this is the thing. And it, it opened up a conversation of, um, we cannot just hire black talent we can't just sign black authors we need black editors we need black staff who are now going to intrinsically understand the stories these authors are putting forward because there is a little knock on the confidence that comes with having your work returned to you and these questions being asked it's similar to the hussy situation it's like what, what are you asking for here? What do you mean? And if I was dealing with someone that understood my culture, this wouldn't be a question. And you said that J.K. Rowling didn't hold you in mind and Ina Blyton definitely didn't, <laughs> did she? So what do you think? See, there are now more black children's authors, but has it gone far enough? And do we need more characters and more illustrations too? Absolutely, illustrations. We are so thin on the ground on illustrations. I recently, my last book was a YA love novel and I was very very demanding on that cover thankfully everyone was very helpful but I was like no 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 no. I need this cover for the for the kids to look very very black there has to be no confusion about and even though we're not using color because it's shading in terms of a portrait I need their features you know I need teens who are them to know that that is them and so I think when it comes to illustrations we're so thin on the ground and you know one could say Yes, we've come far in the publishing industry, but the fact that it's still a point for conversation or, you know, it comes up like, are we doing enough? Then I think we know we're not because we shouldn't have to also keep a tally. Just, just, just sign as many black authors as you can and make great black illustrations and make it normal. Mm. don't you know it's still at a place where if I if I took my son into the children's section today and asked him to find a book where you know he can see himself on the cover it would be a special moment it shouldn't have to be a special moment and you also write about horrendous beauty products for black women so skin bleaches and chemical hair straightening that burns your scalp do you think there's still a white definition of beauty and almost the lighter your skin the better or have the supermodels like naomi campbell changed it at all Oh, no. And bless Naomi. We do love Auntie Naomi. The the reality (laughs) is these things, so the skin bleaching, the hair straightening, they're rooted in something called colorism. And colorism is the idea that the lighter your skin, the closer you are to white beauty standards, so the prettier you are. If there is one thing I, I know to be true of the black and the Asian community is that colorism is like, is our last evil. Because colorism is actually 
um, more encouraged within the community than outside of it. It's it's more of an inside job, you know. And so whilst we have the Alec Wex, the Naomi Campbell, the reality is, is that being of mixed race or lighter skin could be the reason why you get a certain job. It could be the reason why, you know, you might not have the talent or the skill the Naomi Campbell-esque girl has, but you're going to pip her to the post because you're able to be a definition of blackness that isn't too black. It's a passing. So it's like, okay, we can tick this box, but she can pass as being other or exotic. And that's where the encouragement around skin bleaching and hair straightening, unfortunately, still comes from and has a stronghold in, God, so many corners of the black community. It makes me sad. And do you think the world of parenting blogs can be really bitchy and brutal anyway, that women actually, um, you know, they can be just as competitive as in any other professional career? if not more so, which blew my head off, if I can be honest, exiting the quote unquote mummy blogging space is the best thing I ever did for my mental health. I found it to be absolutely horrendous. I don't know much about it now because even though I have children, it's it's not a set or a gang of women that I hang out with, but there was just such a deep hunger to tear another woman down and to do it in a really insidious, nasty way that blew my mind. I'm like, you know, at least if I was working still in publishing or in an office space, at least you know when you're kind of up against someone for a promotion. This one, you didn't even really see where the knife was coming from. You just knew you were stabbed in the back and you were like, I was not expecting that today. Um, And unfortunately, again, like I said, it just doesn't set a great tone for the community that we're saying we need around motherhood and the sisterhood we say that we need when the the influencers or the bloggers of this space, you know, the front-facing people are not being the example of this quote-unquote sisterhood. And you've taken on so many taboos though through your life. Do you ever think it would just be easier to have stayed silent? Every day. <laughs> Every day. It's very... um. It's very mentally taxing being at the forefront of any conversation. And there are times when I do fall back because I'm like, actually, God, not today. Pick someone else. I'm not interested. But also, I understand there is a deep privilege to being loved and accepted by actual strangers the way I am, especially being the kind of woman I am. And in that privilege, I'm like, So if you don't say it, who's going to say it? And even if they do say it, will they be listened to? So I can't just be in this for the glamour and the good times. Looking back to yourself at the age of 10, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? I wish I'd known that um, being the black sheep is not a bad thing. I, I got a sense as a kid a lot that I was often in spaces where everyone would just wish I'd be quiet. And I think the only ones that kept my line of communication open was definitely my grandfather and my father constantly asking me to question things. I remember my grandfather pulling me out of bed to watch the OJ Simpson trial at 2am and I was a child and I was like, what is this man doing? And he was like, no, you you don't understand. This is going to cement history and I want you to watch this. I, I want you to learn to have opinions about things that other people will shy away from. And when you're like seven, six, seven, and someone's telling you that, you're like, I don't get it. But now I'm older. I wish that I understood at 10 what he meant by that. And also how being the black sheep can also be fun. 
You know, I wish I, I heard this saying the other day, I wish I understood that sometimes the consequences can be glorious. And by that, I mean, I wish I didn't spend so much time worrying about the negative consequences of some of my choices. Oh, but you know, what if this person doesn't speak to you? What if this person doesn't like you? What if, um, now I'm where I'm at. Sometimes the consequence is great. It's great to not have to have relationships with bad people. It's great to be so honest. A consequence doesn't always have to be a bad thing. Candice Brathwaite, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. It's been fascinating. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the author and television presenter Candice Brathwaite. The producer was Lucy Ditchmond. If you've enjoyed this episode of Past Imperfect, please do go to the Times Radio app where you can download our interviews with guests including Sakir Starmer, Lem Sisse, Maggie O'Farrell and Nadia Hussain. You can also buy a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.